Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. It is a holiday weekend, and you made it. We all made it. Well, my name is Tyler Kirkpatrick. I am one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, um, our, our lead pastor, Brad Evangelista, is usually up here preaching, and currently we're working through the Gospel of John. But today I have the privilege of uh, standing in this pulpit and proclaiming the Word of God for us this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, and it's a, a very familiar story in the Bible if you have been around the church for any amount of time. It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. There are a few stories in the Bible that are completely misunderstood. One of those, probably the most famous, would be David and Goliath, where we are sometimes told that the story of David and Goliath is really a matter of inspiration for us that we can conquer our giants. Well, that's not true at all. David and Goliath is a a picture of what will one day be our reigning and ruling and conquering victor, Christ Jesus, who conquers our enemies, namely sin and death, for us. And there are other stories in the Bible that are misunderstood and misapplied, but really this morning, uh, this story in Acts 9, the conversion of Saul, is not one of those stories. It's, it's not really one of the stories that is misunderstood. I think we all can read it and see pretty clearly that it is the conversion of Saul. Now, there are a few little theological bits and pieces that may be um, disagreed upon, but by and large, the story is easily understood. However, I do think that it is a story in the Bible that we are tempted to disbelieve not for the murderer that we've never met. We read this and we see Saul and we think, oh wow, look what God can do. We don't disbelieve it for people like that. We tend to be tempted to disbelieve it for those around us that we know are too far gone. Maybe the family member that has caused so much pain in our life and we see that they they could never be saved. Or maybe an absentee parent who has never been there and you've not spoken with in years, they could never be saved. Or maybe the immoral co-worker worker that you sit, to, sit next to every day of your life and you have to wear headphones because you kind of feel dirty when you leave work. I could never be saved. Or maybe the friend who just rejects God outright and is somewhat combatant any time you bring up the faith. I could never be saved. You know, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that God just probably isn't saving. But Acts chapter 9 asks us to reject the notion that anyone is unsavable. Acts 9 serves to fill us with the hope of knowing that God is pleased to save not just the unsavable, but even His enemies. And so what I want to do with the time that we have this morning is I want to look through, want to work our way through this chapter and make three observations 
about God's grace. But before we do that, I want to pray for our time. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this moment that you have ordained in history, that we would be here in this place, sitting under this text with these people. Father, I pray that you would work out your sovereign will in this moment, that we would hear clearly what it is you are communicating in this passage of Scripture for us, these people. And Father, I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, apply it to our hearts, enlighten our minds to the truths that are here, that we may be made more like Christ and that we may live like him even more than we did before we came. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. All right, so the first observation that I have is this. God's grace knows no bounds. God's grace knows no bounds. So look with me in uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. The Bible tells us, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank." So the author of the book of Acts is the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the Dr. Luke. Well, when we come into this, uh, to, to this scripture, Luke doesn't really leave anything to our imagination at all. He paints Saul as kind of this like rabid, ravenous beast who has set his mind on destroying all of those people of the way in Damascus. And so, after Stephen is stoned and the church in Jerusalem has scattered because of Saul's work in Jerusalem, he has set his eye on Damascus. The, the beast has found his target and he knows where it is that he wants to go. And he wants to expunge the way in Damascus just like he has scattered them in Jerusalem. Obviously, the way um, refers to followers of Jesus, but likely it's because of John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that early on in the history of the church, we see the church just being called the way, right? We are followers of Jesus. We follow the way into eternal life. And so Saul is making his way there to destroy the way. And Luke tells us that there was threat and murder on his breath. Right? There's a lot of detail wrapped up here at the very beginning of this. I think Luke wants us to know very, very clearly who Saul is in this story. He's the one who, with everything that he has, every breath that comes out of his lungs, is threats and death for those who follow Jesus Christ. This is the man who is the main character in our story. And so the captor He's locked in 
on his captive. He's on his way. But in a strange, divine turn of events, we realize that the captive is not actually in the city of Damascus. The captive is on the road to Damascus. You see, one of the great truths of the Bible, one of the, one of the things that's happening underneath this story in God's plan is that as Saul is making his advance on Damascus, God is making his advance on Saul. And, you know, one of the strange things that I, I you know, Paul would have known this when he became Paul and was no longer Saul. Um, by the way, those two names are synonymous, so whenever I say one for the other, same guy. You just, have to, you just have to track with me. But one of the things that Paul would have understood later on, and that he does not yet understand now, is he's on his way north to Damascus, right? He, he, is, he is systematically destroying all that Jesus has kind of like stirred up, right? Jesus has come, he's dead now, and all these people are phonies, and they are, they're, they're enemies of the Jewish faith. And so Saul, being a Jew amongst Jews, the foremost, he wants to protect his religion. And so he's going north, and he's going to stop it where it starts. But all along, in Acts chapter 8, a man named Philip is heading south with the gospel. And so even as this is playing out, we see that God is in control of all of it. Nothing stands outside of God's will, and even when there is one persecution here, there is the spreading of the gospel here. And that's what is happening. And so as we just read, we see that the great persecutor of the church, the great persecutor of Jesus himself, he has now himself been arrested by God's grace. After having put countless numbers of men and women in church for following Jesus, he has now been arrested by Jesus himself. Right? No doubt that this is a miraculous encounter. There is a flash of light. There is the sound of the Lord himself. Paul goes blind. There, there's a lot of miraculous things happening here. And, and I, I, I want to see those things, and I want us to, like, revel in God's providence, His sovereignty over all things, and His ability to do all things. But also, there's just a simplistic explanation here of conversion, right? God pursues His enemies. Yes, there's a flash. Yes, there's a rumbling but even more simple than that, God pursues His enemies. He is the seeker and saver of the lost. He goes forth into the world, into the nations, and He reveals Himself. He reveals the grace of His Father. You know, I want us to see something that seems pretty insignificant here in our text. Verse 1 starts out like this, but Saul... You know, it, it seems insignificant, but obviously it serves as a transition from things that have happened before. Well, in Acts chapter 7, we read that Stephen has just preached this amazing sermon where he has basically started with Abraham and ended with Moses and talked about how God has delivered his people from the captivity of sin and death. 
and they, they kill him. They stone him for his message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And lo and behold, standing there in the crowd is Saul. And all of the people who go and stone Stephen, they lay down their garments at the feet of Saul. And Saul approved. Well, in Acts chapter 8, you read about Philip being called by the Spirit to go to Samaria in the south. And even on his way to Samaria, which is, it, it, that's his actual destination, he meets with the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, and the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. And so you have Stephen, who is willing to die for the gospel, Philip, who is willing to take the gospel, but Saul. But Saul, I think, carries the weight of all... <laughs> all of his hostility towards Christ. Here are these two men. Here are these two mighty warriors for Jesus. But Saul still breathing threats and murder. It's almost to say that this guy Saul, he's too far gone. This guy Saul... Hopeless. Lost cause. Y'all want to admire somebody? Stephen and Philip. But I can't help but think that this Saul of Tarsus here in Acts chapter 9, who is soon to be the Apostle Paul, I can't help but think of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Look with me there. Here the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. You know, as we look at Saul, as we read of Stephen and as we read of Philip and we get to Saul, we, we can't help but pity him. But really, pity him because he seems like he's not the type of guy who's going to be saved. This is, this is God's foremost enemy. But what Saul doesn't understand that Paul later would understand and encourage the church with is that we can never write someone off as hopeless because of the truth but God. We can never look at someone's life in that moment. We can never look at even their past and think, well, they are hopeless. Not because but Saul was breathing threats and murder, but because but God, being rich in grace and mercy. Well, this is exactly what is happening to the chief of sinners in this moment. Saul's learning the lesson that he will preach for the rest of his life. That all of our wickedness pales in comparison to the grace of God. All of our wickedness 
pales in comparison to the grace of God. Nothing can keep us from God's saving grace. Nothing. The second observation is this. God's grace exceeds our expectations. So let's continue in chapter 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief of priests to bind all who call on your name. Our brother Ananias speaks for all of us. Right? There are people that we look at, and we look at their life, we look at the context, we look at all of the clues, we see all of the things, and we just kind of think, yeah, this is not somebody that I think God can save. Right? Of course we want him to. We, we even pray and ask that he will save this person, but we're just not sure that this is the type of person who's like the saved type. It doesn't, doesn't have kind of what it takes. Everything is really against Saul in this moment. And Ananias knows it. He's like, yeah, hey, you know, the crazy thing is, like God comes to him in a vision, and he's like, oh, hey, God. And then he freaks out when he's like, hey, I need you to go to Saul. I think I would have been freaked out from the moment that God started talking to me. But I think this goes to show us how bad of a person Saul is, right? That Ananias can be talking to God and be like, wait, 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 Saul, do you know Saul? I think like maybe you've missed a couple of things in the past couple of days, God. Saul? But he speaks for all of us. Right? Think about it. How often do we push off the Spirit's nudging to share our faith because in our mind, this person won't care about Jesus? How often have you gone about your day where you maybe have even felt pretty intensely the Spirit kind of pushing you to share your faith with someone, like a random stranger, and you're like, nah, that doesn't seem like a saved person. I don't know, God. I that person doesn't seem like they're saved. There's, there's too much happening. I, 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 can, I can tell. I can see what's happening here. Not the safe type. And we just kind of brush off what the Spirit is doing. And just by, by the way, uh, just maybe to convict you, if you're thinking that has never happened to me, I think you need to pray and ask the Lord to give you a greater desire for the unsaved. But to look at people and think this is not the saved type of person, right? That's a, that's a, that's a mindset of the flesh. That is not of the Spirit. 
Our flesh is weak and frail. Our flesh is still battling the effects of Genesis chapter 3 of the fall and sin and death. And often our flesh will tell us, ah, this is not probably something you need to do right now. Yeah, that, that person, too far gone. Look at them. You can walk over there. Go ahead, try it. Guarantee you they won't accept Jesus. That's what the flesh does. The flesh reminds us of all of the reasons we shouldn't share our faith. But that's not the mindset we should have. You see, we're not called to share the gospel because we're extraordinarily capable. None of us in this room have received Matthew 28, 19, and 20 because we seem that we are highly capable to, to live out that mission, right? God has not looked at any of us and thought, you know what? You're a Matthew 28, 19, and 20 person. I see you. Good with words. Extrovert. Don't care what people think about you. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. God hasn't called us because we are extraordinarily capable. And He hasn't called us because we have the most effective evangelistic method. I think sometimes we often think, well, I'm so ill-equipped, I can't share my faith. Well, brothers and sisters, you haven't been called to share your faith because you are good at sharing a certain method with people. Right? Me, we, God. Like, there's all these, like, patterns and paradigms. They're helpful, but you haven't been called because of them. And we're not motivated to share our faith because we can foresee acceptance. The, the Bible never tells us that, yeah, you should go, go share your faith with that person because they're definitely going to believe. We're never given that promise in all of Scripture. And so we're not called because we're extraordinarily capable. We're not called because we have a certain evangelistic zeal and we have just the right method to ensure that everyone we come across is going to get saved, right? If you're an atheist, I got something for you. If you're, if you, if you're a follower of Darwin, I got, I got something for you, right? We share because we believe the good news of Jesus saves We simply share the gospel because we believe the good news of Jesus saves. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. What the Bible tells us, what Paul tells the church in Corinth, is that what God has done on the cross, the sure work of dying and rising again, that men and women might be reconciled to a holy, perfect God, when I depart... What Jesus has said is, I am leaving this work up to you. You're taking up what I began and what I guaranteed through my death and resurrection. You are ministers of reconciliation. 
you take up the work of Jesus. When Paul tells this to the believers at Corinth, and by the way, can we just stop for a moment and understand that he, even if he's telling the church at Corinth, hey, by the way, you are also, you've received the ministry of reconciliation. If he's telling them, he's told all of us. All right, this, this church is so messed up, right, the church in Corinth, maybe this one too, I'm not sure, but definitely the church in Corinth. It's so messed up, and Paul still says, hey, we've, uh, if, you, if you've trusted in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, the, the ministry of reconciliation is ours. We, we continue what the Lord has done in his work on the cross. You know, I was convicted just recently by a conversation that my wife had with our oldest son. If you know anything about Max Kirkpatrick, you know that he can tell stories. He is extraordinarily articulate. That has nothing, I'm not talking about his intelligence. He's an average child. But he is extremely articulate. And he can just tell stories. And they're really good. Um, most of them are not true. But they're so good. Well, I came home um, one day this week, and Chelsea was like, hey, um, I was having a conversation with Max earlier, and he's really upset. And I said, well, what's bothering him? And she said, we, <clears throat> we just came home from the gym. And he's really concerned with all of the kids in childcare there because he asked them if they knew God and if they went to church. And he, and he said, Mom, they don't go to church. They don't even know God. And Chelsea said, well, what did you tell them? And he said, Mom, I told them and this is either the greatest evangelistic method or the absolute worst evangelistic method. Mom, I told them if they don't know God, they're going to go to hell. You know, my son is eight years old and he professes to know the Lord. And I'm going to continue to press him to trust the Lord. I don't know if he's saved or not yet. But the boy loves people. And he's concerned for their soul. Why is this convicting? Because I go to this gym every morning of my life. And I'm not sure that my spirit has ever been that troubled for those around me. You know, in, in my heart, I must just think, you know, we're all here just to work out. At least some of us. That guy's definitely just sitting there texting, but most of us are here to work out. If that's you... Please stop it. But I'm just here to work out. This is not the type of place that God would use me 
to save people. Well, apparently, according to Max Kirkpatrick, this is exactly the place God sends you to save people. You, you see, this is just what we do. We, we, we rally our inner Ananias and we say, wait a minute, Max Fitness? This is the place people here can believe? I don't have enough time, Lord. I'm just here so I can eat what I want when I leave. Right? We all know what I'm talking about. We all know what I'm talking about because we've all been in this place, right? This, this isn't the right place. It isn't the right time. This isn't the right person. And we may not say that out loud, but we live that way. We go about our day. We go into our places of work or go into our places of pleasure, whatever it is we're doing, taking our kids to the park, visiting our elderly parents in the nursing home, whatever it is, we go into these places and we just live our lives. Because I think inherently something about us, and it has to be of the flesh, says, yeah, well, you're here for this thing, so it kind of seems like since you're here on this business, probably God is not going to do anything special here in this place through you. And so we just say, okay, I'm just going to go and do my thing then. But here's... What the Lord is telling us very clearly through even Ananias's kind of initial resistance. We never know who the unlikely convert is going to be. We never know who the unlikely convert is going to be. And the reality is, and think about it just for a moment. If God was so gracious to save you and me and Saul, then his grace is enough for anyone. I think so often we kind of get caught up in the like post-Christian me and we forget the pre-Christian me. Because especially if, if I'm walking into the gym and I'm looking at all these people and I'm like, nah, <laughs> nope, definitely not him, right? Too big, stronger than me, too many cool tattoos, definitely not getting saved. Right? We just go in and we start writing people off, even subconsciously. But in reality, I was any one of those people in that gym. And if the Lord could save me, and even more than that, call me to be a preacher, He can save anyone. Anybody. Every single one of us who have placed our faith in Christ Jesus, who have looked upon the cross, every single one of us are an unlikely convert. Because like Springer said when he read for us, we, we weren't just living our lives. We were enemies. Enemies of God. Persecutors of Jesus Christ. You do realize to be a persecutor of Jesus Christ, all you have to do is deny that he is who he says he is. That's enough. And you are a persecutor. 
You're making a claim that Jesus, the Son of God, is not who he claims to be. Oh, brothers and sisters, before Jesus, we were enemies ourselves. Every single one of us. The third observation God's grace doesn't require co- cooperation, it produces faith. So let's, um, let's finish, finish the story here, starting in verse 15. Right, so verse 15, right before that, Ananias is saying, wait, Saul, like Saul, Saul? Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. You know, I want to be clear about something. Throughout all of Scripture, it is so very clear and obvious that God does choose to use means in bringing about salvation. God certainly uses the means of men and women through biblical history, but even into our lifetime, He uses means to bring about the salvation of unbelievers. But one thing we must understand in saying that is that God, while yes, He does use means, He is never dependent on those means. It's not as if God is up in heaven this morning looking down on Cross Point Church as we worship and thinking, all right, so how many abled bodies do I have? Five, six, three, no, three, five, four, five. He's not looking at what is here and thinking, do I have enough today to accomplish my plan? Yes, God uses means, but He's not dependent on those means, right? Think about it for just a moment here with, with Ananias. God is not asking Ananias for help with what he hopes to do. He's commanding Ananias to do what he has already willed to do. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Again, this is the Apostle Paul. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. One of the reasons that God is not dependent on us to bring about the salvation of His children is because all of the salvation that will go forth for all of eternity has been secured by Jesus Christ on the cross. He conquered sin and death, and three days later, he rose from the dead, ensuring that all that God had promised to do would be sure, that all of God's choosing before the foundations of the earth of men and women throughout all of history would be sure. Not because someday Ananias would be willing to do what God asked him to do, but because of what Jesus had already done on the cross. 
You see, God uses Ananias to do what he has already willed, what he has already secured. You know, that should free us up as we think of, of evangelizing and sharing our faith. We're not hoping, like, this is, this is not like the slots where you pull it and you're like, all right, jackpot. Like, we're not walking up to people and being like, man, Lord, just let this be one of the ones who accept the gospel. We don't have to think that way. Because at any given moment, that person could be exactly who the Lord is drawing, and He may be using us. He chooses to use us, but He is in no way dependent on us. Security of salvation, the assurance of salvation, is not because of who shared the gospel with me. It was because Jesus died for me. So for three days, Saul sat blind. Can you imagine? <laughs> for three days, you're, you're blind. Right? If I stubbed my toe, for those three days, I'm like, man, my toe, it's broken. My wife's like, it's not broken. I'm like, no, it's definitely broken. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm limping. Like, when you stub your you don't need to limp. Right? I can't even, I, I, my threshold for pain is, is so minimal. Anything that happens on my body, I'm like, I need to figure out what Google says about this. Chelsea's like, get off of Google. <laughs> right? For three days, the man, the, man, the man sat blind. Blind. And hungry. With nothing but his prayers. Can you imagine the prayers of Saul of Tarsus? God, was, was Stephen Right? Have you, have you really risen from the dead, Lord? Have I been wrong this whole time? Imagine. God, have I made a mistake? There's a lot of unanswered questions in Saul's mind in this moment. And listen, dear unbeliever, if you are here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I just don't know enough about this whole God thing. Oh. Oh. You are ripe for picking. Saul would have known nothing. You see, this man knew everything there was to know about the Old Testament. All of the scriptures. I would assume that honestly, he probably had most of them memorized. And yet he realized, oh, I don't know anything. But then something miraculous happens. Saul hears the word of the Lord, and for the very first time in his life, he could actually see. You know, this whole time, Saul of Tarsus has been a blind man. Not physically. He could see just fine. He was able to see Stephen be stoned, and he was able to even see that it pleased him greatly. But his heart was blind. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives maybe one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible. 
He says, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. In a moment, for the very first time, Saul of Tarsus could see. And he, he saw, having all of these unanswered questions, having all of this baggage in his past, having all of these murders and threats on his breath just moments, days before, and yet in a moment, through God's servant Ananias, Paul, Saul, he could see everything. And one of the greatest things is that even though Ananias was kind of freaked out, you know, he had that initial moment where he's like, don't know if this is the guy you're talking about, Lord, but I guess I'm going to do this thing. He goes to Saul of Tarsus and he says, Brother Saul. You see, one of the great things about God's grace is that when it's worked out rightly, the enemies of the church become brothers and sisters in the church. This man is now Brother Saul, a chosen instrument in the Redeemer's hands. You see, one of the reasons we like Acts chapter 9 so much, one of the reasons it's such a, an encouraging story to us, is because really it is one of the truest pictures of biblical salvation. It, it shows us, it paints for us the portrait, the reality, the truth that we don't choose Christ, He chooses us. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture to look at. Right? The Damascus Road is a portrait of God's free, unmerited grace to those who don't deserve it. To those of us who are believers, we so cherish this because it's our story. We, we look at this and we think, this, this was me. God chose me, He sought me, He revealed Himself to me when I was not even really thinking of giving myself to Him. And maybe even some of us had thought we gave ourselves to Him, and yet we were still really living for ourselves. Christianity was just kind of a convenient thing and an addendum to our already existent life. And all of a sudden, I mean, how many of us have a testimony where we were in the church for years and all of a sudden the Lord revealed Himself? Right, this is why Acts 9 is so cherished by the church, because those whom God has chon chosen before the beginning of the world, Jesus seeks them out. And He comes to them, even when they're breathing threats and murders against His Son. Toward the end of his life, Paul summarized why Jesus did what He did that day on the Damascus Road. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Unbeliever, if I can leave you with one thing this morning, it's this. The Lord is perfectly patient. Many of us in this room, we, we, ran, for God, we, we ran from God. For many years, we ran as fast as we could in the other way. Many of us disavowed God. We wrote him off as not being a kind and gracious God because of all of the wickedness that had happened to us in our lives. And so we disavowed him completely. This is no God that I would want to serve. And many of us, many of us cursed God. And yet there are so many of us that stand here today, not as God's enemies, but as his sons and daughters. Because like Paul, we proclaim Christ has made us his own. Christ has made us his own. For, for all of us in this room, I would encourage us, if you're an unbeliever, I would encourage you to hear the word of the Lord today and entrust yourself to him. And if you're a believer, rejoice in this grace that you have been given. Rejoice and entrust yourself to him anew today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day and for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, yes, at times it pricks us to the core. Father, your, your word is a two-edged sword. And yet, it also brings healing to us. It reveals to us not only the state that we are in as human beings, unregenerate enemies of God, but it also brings to us the hope of the gospel. That yes, while we were enemies, you sought us out to save us. Oh, Father God, thank you for that grace this morning. And Father, we do pray that if there are any unbelievers in our midst this day, that you would work on them, that you would be doing that even now, and that you would even be pleased to use one of us to reveal this truth this morning, that not only we, but all of heaven might rejoice. We pray all of this to your glory and for the exaltation of Christ, and it's in his name that we pray, amen.